On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley, me sitting in for Scott, we're going to be talking about what we expect to hear from the Prime Minister when he testifies in front of the Commons Committee about the WE controversy, but specifically about the, the fact that this is very, very unusual for a sitting Prime Minister to be called to talk in front of this. What are we expecting? We're also talking about tents in Hamilton, not because people are having a nice little camping trip. Homeless people are pitching tent camps now, encampments and certain places of the city. Some want them taken down. Some are fighting to keep them up. What is the right answer? And we're going to talk with Charles Pascal, who is a professor of education, about what we heard from Doug Ford and the minister and the government about reopening schools in the fall. Did they do well? Did they not do well? Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show. Scott Radley in for the other Scott today. I want to bring in Ted Michaels, who's just finished doing the news. The number one fan of Chicago. I'm talking about the band, not the city. I want to run something by you. Boy, this is exciting news. Uh, the trombonist for Chicago, Jimmy Panko, has been awarded something that people didn't know existed. It's a Lifetime Achievement Award for the International Trombonists Association. Isn't that great news? Yeah, I, I actually didn't know this. Congratulations to him because he has brought what I call sexy to the trombone because normally it's just a, a, a an instrument, right? Whatever. But you watch them on stage. Uh, Ted, I want no, I do not want to know how you bring sexy to a trombone. <laughs> There's a, but it does make me wonder when there is a trombone association yes. lifetime achievement, what other instruments? Is there like a glockenspiel <laughs> lifetime <laughs> achievement award? Oboe bassoon. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the triangle. The, tri- the triangulist. Yes, he hit the triangle with particular aplomb for 68 years for the symphony orchestra. I just can't imagine that there are a lot of people visiting this trombone museum. I didn't even know, but uh, congratulations well, that, to him. Jimmy Panko. Go. Good, good for him. Jimmy Panko, there you go. The, the, they honor people for trombone. I mean, look, trombone is a hard instrument to play. I, I have tried it once. Uh, not easy, not difficult to make a noise. Um, a little bit more difficult to find a note because there's no like markings. or Anyway, on we go. This is the Scott Thompson Show. Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson today. As I am for the rest of this week and next week while Scott takes a well-earned vacation. First up today, you've probably heard about this. I hope you've heard about this. If you've been paying attention to the news at all, you've heard about this. If you haven't heard about what we're going to talk about, I would suggest that this is an indication to you, you are not paying enough attention because the prime minister will be testifying at a commons committee hearing today about the we charity controversy. This is not a commonplace thing to happen for a prime minister to testify at one of these committees. Who, what will come of it? Well, tell you what, just before we get to that, here is Global's Abigail Beeman uh, with her idea of what we might be hearing at the committee meeting today. We know Trudeau will appear virtually, and you'll remember Finance Minister Bill Morneau dropped a bombshell in his testimony at the same committee, saying he wrote a check to WE that very same day to reimburse them $41,000 in trip expenses. A government source tells Global News there isn't any new information like that expected, saying the Prime Minister has the truth on his side, and much of the information is already out there. They see this as an opportunity to speak about this issue clearly, and then they hope move on to other issues. The opposition is not likely to do that anytime soon. 
That's coming up at three o'clock today. Before then, to help us sort through what else is going to be coming up, let me bring in Michael Tobe. He is a Troy Media Syndicated columnist and a Washington Times contributor. Michael, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. I am loathe because I, I really hate things like this. I hate to throw out words that just are so, uh, st- I don't know, just stupid words that people use all the time. And historic right. is one of those words. But it really is relatively historic that the prime minister is going to be speaking here because this does not happen very often that a sitting prime minister gets called before one of these committees. No. Um, apparently, according to some stuff I was reading, and maybe you saw the same stu- same material, Scott, It's the first time since 1832 that a Canadian prime minister has been brought before a committee to speak on a very personal level like this one. Now, obviously, prime ministers do speak before committees, as someone pointed out earlier that I noticed on social media, and they're quite right. When Stephen Harper presented his case, my old friend and boss, presented his case about the Senate and how it should be broken up and whether his model that he was proposing made sense, he had to appear before a committee. But that's an issue of policy. This is very, very different in the sense that a prime minister does not usually appear before any sort of a committee to explain himself in terms of what he has done, what he was involved with, or, as some people are going to ask him, why he didn't recuse himself from an issue like this, this pertaining to the We Charity and the $912 million contract that they received, when there were so many things, including appearances by family members and payments for such at various We Charity events. The fact that his finance minister had ties directly to We Charity, including his two daughters, one of which worked there, and the fact that his wife was obviously very strongly associated with the We Charity, that being Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, who sat on a board, well, sat on a commission with them and actually ran a podcast with them as well. When you put all those things together, you know, obviously this prime minister is going to have to deal with at least three hours of grilling for things that, quite frankly, just seem to show, as we've now seen for what will soon be the third time in five years, that this prime minister is going to have to visit the ethics commissioner because his, ethnic, his ethical behavior and moral codes seem to be very, very lacking. I will point out that I did hear some people pointing out in the last day or two that, well, what about John Kretschmann with the sponsorship scandal? Uh, he did have to answer those questions. People will remember that hearing with the golf balls famously, but that was yep. a judicial inquiry. That was not the same thing as the Commons Committee that we're talking about right now. So we have right. heard prime ministers have to defend behavior before. It's just a different form. It's a very different form. I mean, this is, and this is something, obviously, as I said, this is something that we're now starting to associate far more with this prime minister than any other before. And I know that obviously some people, including a lot of partisans, mostly on the political left, come back and say that, well, look, the ethics commissioner has only been around since 2007. There are only two prime ministers that fell under its guise, that being Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau. And as bad as things are with Trudeau and the fact that he keeps facing it, it could have been far worse years ago. But you can't look at it from that historical point of view. You can only base it on present information. And a very clear example is, of the two prime ministers in question, one prime minister, Stephen Harper, never went before the ethics commissioner for anything. The other one is going to go for his third time in five years. There's a very big difference. 
the fact that this has not happened because you're you're right that Trudeau has had two previous uh, with the SNC and with the uh, Aga Khan trip uh, that he's been in front of the Ethics Commission, but this didn't happen before. He wasn't called in front of this committee. Is no. the fact that he's there now entirely the result of the fact that he has a minority government and the opposition can call him, or is there something else going on? Well, it's certainly a little bit easier. There's no question of that. When you're in a minority government situation. <clears throat> excuse me, you don't control the day-to-day operations of Parliament or the way that committees operate. You obviously can't stack them and control them. So, yes, it's far, far easier to call a prime minister in a minority government situation if some sort of a controversy or a matter pertaining to recusement, disclosure, etc., has to be discussed in a larger forum. But I think also as well, even if it wasn't that case, I mean, as much as liberals have been gritting their teeth and backing this prime minister, I think even they are starting to realize that after nearly three weeks of this just sweeping through the, you know, the Canadian news, our our basic discussions that we're having with people, and the fact that it's actually competing with something as major as the coronavirus pandemic or COVID-19, which it has been sort of side by side in the news for the past few weeks, I think it shows that people are starting to realize how critical this is, how crucial this may be, and the fact that the Prime Minister has said things that were either untrue at one point, which were related to the fact that he claimed, as you may remember, Scott, that no family member had ever been paid by We Charity. Well, that was found to be a lie. Or the fact that this Prime Minister has done this so many times and, in, in the view of many, maybe got away scot-free when he really should have, shouldn't have in the past, or where he took up to a year to apologize for the Aga Khan controversy, the fact that he never properly or formally apologized for the NSC Lavlin controversy, I think a lot of people are starting to realize that with this one, that being We Charity, that there's so many problems involving the Trudeau family and the We Charity itself, that being Craig and Mark Heilberger, that there basically has to be a larger inquiry. Well, and and Michael, what has to be driving some liberals nuts as well about this is that going at, coming out of COVID or three, four months into COVID, the liberals were soaring in the polls, had like a 20 plus point lead. Yep. Anyone who wanted to call a snap election, they were rolling to another majority and an unforced error has, I don't know if it's closed that gap, but it is closing that gap and giving the other parties an opportunity here. You have taken a sure thing majority and turn it into something else. Yeah, very much so. But again, the sure thing majority was created by the fact that we had a prime minister, that being Justin Trudeau, handing out billions of dollars in, in money to people, to businesses, institutions, and others to stay afloat during COVID-19. And obviously, even though things like that are against my own political DNA, I and many others understood why it had to be done. But when a prime minister is doing not necessarily positive news stories, but handing out money to help people, naturally his popularity, or in other cases her popularity, would go sky high. Now that we've come down to reality and we've sort of hit the ground very hard, and people are starting to think about the We Charity, his polling numbers are changing. Whereas he was sort of polling between 55 to 64 percent in terms of personal popularity, he is now dipping below 50 in some polls. And the Angus Reid Institute actually showed a recent poll that had him in 50, and now a couple others are showing him lower, which means that for a while, maybe Canadians weren't thinking about it as much. Maybe they were waiting to see what would come next, what issue would carry it on, would this continue to exist in the news cycle? 
past its usual one to three day mark. And because it's gone on for so many weeks, I think people are starting to realize that Trudeau at one point obviously was popular for a reason that maybe didn't make a lot of sense. But now his popularity is starting to drop to levels of where they where it was before or lower because people are starting to realize that the fantasy that we lived with before is not the same as the reality that we're dealing with right now. And this is the same Justin Trudeau that some people voted for once, twice, or in certain cases, never. The, the what question are you hoping that we that we hear a real answer to today? Because look, I I understand politicians are politicians. The Kielbergers yesterday gave some very political answers, and when I say political answers, I mean they didn't answer at all the question that they were asked. No, they um, didn't. but what question are you really hoping we get an answer to today? Whether or not that happens. You see, I think no matter what, Justin Trudeau, you know, you can talk about his level of competency or incompetency, depending on how you look at him, he will be trained more thoroughly and he will be prepared more thoroughly than the Kyle Burgers were. And they, the Kyle Burgers, as you said, gave a lot of political answers, which would be non-answers. And I thought handled things very, very poorly, including, you know, sort of laughing on camera when certain questions were asked. They looked very juvenile and it just, it just looked very strange. If Justin Trudeau did something like that during his video testimony over three hours, he would be grilled beyond belief. So they're going to ensure that's not going to happen. What question would I like to have answered? I think the easiest one right off the bat is why he didn't recuse himself right in the first place. I would like to get, even if it's a political answer, I want something there. And I'm certainly hoping that people who are sitting on the Finance Committee, such as Tory MP Pierre Polyevre, NDP, <clears throat> excuse me, MP Charlie Angus and others, who were very, very tough and, and asked very pointed questions to the Kyleburgers a few days ago, I hope they do the same thing with Justin Trudeau, because we really need to know why he didn't recuse himself. And as well, it would also be nice to hear why he originally said that none of the members of his family were paid for any We Charity events, and we actually find out that they were, because those two contradictions are basically, I think, leading in terms of his popularity having dropped very badly by a number of opinion, uh, polling companies. For that reason, I think we need to hear exactly why, uh, or, uh, rather than him just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We need there, to- there's one other thing, Michael, and we only have a couple of minutes left, and I, so I want to jump to it quickly, because there's one other thing that we learned yesterday from the Toronto Star, and I thought this was so telling and so interesting, and I'd love to know about this, because you and I, and I think most people listening, when we think of a charity, we think of someone who's doing work probably for less than market value. They're doing something out of the goodness of their heart. And we learned some numbers yesterday that they were going to be hiring 175 program managers for $30,000 to do four and a half months work and supervisors, a bunch of supervisors for 45,000 for five and a half months work and project leaders for eight months work for $125,000. And what I'm looking at is, is this the government's thought of what charity is about? Is this the government's idea of what you get to do charity? Or is this the we charity saying, this is what we pay our people either way? It says something, and I don't know what it is, but it says something about public money yep. that we're willing to do charity work for exorbitant amounts of money. It seems so out of line. It does. You're absolutely right. I mean, the whole theory of a charity is it's not supposed to operate in that manner. The way that Craig and Mark Kyleberger operated We Charity, at least the way we know about it publicly, is contrary to the way we think that most charities operate. And in fact, and maybe you've had it also on CHML, 
there have been a number of people who run charitable organizations who come out to basically say, no, that's not the way my charity operates. Even if it's a lot smaller than We Charity, we do things by the book and we do it properly. So, yeah, I saw that story in the Toronto Star. And much like you, Scott, I was also scratching my head because I think for the average person, they wouldn't understand it. No one is saying that you have to work for a charity and get absolutely nothing. But the numbers we're talking about and the money that's being bandied about is much, much higher than most people would expect for an organization that's supposed to be doing good for people, or in the case of We Charity, helping children in various capacities, from education, um, proper food, clean drinking water, etc. That's what it was supposed to be about in the first place, and that's why a lot of progressive organizations and others praised the Kyle Burgers for what they were doing with We Charity. Anyway, the, the real trick is here with numbers like this and things that we keep hearing. I think We Charity is not only just on shaky ground, it'll be amazing if they can actually survive this. At the well, same time, it, though, it'll be yeah. interesting to see if Justin Trudeau survives his committee hearing. And not just the we thing. And yes, Trudeau is up at three. The other thing is, and I, and I hope this is not the case, and we have to run, unfortunately. I really believe, and I hope I'm wrong, but I really believe there's an awful lot of charities now that probably are having people look at them skeptically and cynically saying, is this really what charities pay for good works? And I hope that's not the attitude, because I, I don't believe most do it. But I don't want people to start withholding charitable donations saying, well, look, we're just being, you know, putting all our money into administration here. It's not going where it should. Fair it's going to put a lot of pressure, I think, on a lot of other charities to prove that they're not doing that. Michael Tobe, columnist with the Washington Times. Love having you on. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you drive around the city, parts of the city anyway these days, uh, you may come across some tent encampments, tent cities, whatever you want to call them. We'll call them encampments that have sprung up in certain areas. And not that anyone is likely to make the mistake, but just to be clear, these are not people having a, uh, a an overnight camping time. These are homeless people who have set up these encampments uh, themselves. Well, now there is a dispute, a disagreement brewing because some people within the city, including some city councillors, don't think these should be standing and they think they should be coming down. Others, lawyers, some doctors, some advocates think that, um, well, they're fighting to prevent that. Let me first go. We're going to play a little clip here from councillor Jason Farr. He is a downtown councillor. Here's what he had to say about the idea of the tent encampments and whether they're going to be coming down right away. It was our hope with our daily engagement with the folks that are living in the tents right now that they would take safer uh, and more humane accommodations that we offer each and every one of them, whether it's housing, hotels, or shelters. We'll see how many have taken us up on that by Friday, but we have no, right now, any direction to, to go in heavy-handed and dismantle every tent on site. Wade Pozyomka is a partner with Ross and McBride. He is the co-counsel for Ham Smart and Keeping Six. And along with uh, Sharon Crow and Nadine Watson with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic, he joins me now. Wade, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, you are on the side that is fighting for these people in the tents to remain in place and to let them stay. Why? Um, so no, nobody on our side of the fence is saying that, you know, the ultimate end goal here is encampments that house the homeless. Um, what we're saying is that when there's not adequate supports in place, so proper affordable housing, enough uh, room in the shelter system, and systems in place that work for some of the people who are in the encampments, 
It's not a good idea, especially during a COVID-19 pandemic, to dismantle these encampments. It's not a good idea for the people in the encampment that causes harm. It also causes harm to the, the broader community, um, you know, through the spread of a, a serious infection. Does the encampment idea, though, if we're, if we're saying that, if this is a, if this is a uh, defense against COVID, does the idea of a bunch of people living in close quarters, though, in an encampment, does that not lead to more chance of getting COVID? I would suggest that they're probably more distanced. They're also outside, right? So we know from public health guidelines that the, the transmission of COVID-19 is lesser when you're outside rather than when you're in an enclosed uh, space. Um, they're also in their own individual tents. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, the risk is is less while they're in encampment. But it's not that I'm saying or, or that my clients are saying they shouldn't be in, um, you know, other safe means. All we're saying is that for some individuals in the encampment, those aren't suitable to them. Let me give you an example. There's uh, strict rules sometimes in the shelter system and in hotels because there's not enough shelter room. So the, they're using hotels as an extended shelter system right now. There's strict rules. And those rules will say, you know, if you have drug use, you could be kicked out. If you, if you pass a curfew, for example, um, and you're not in at a certain time, you can be denied entry. Um, and so some people who have serious mental health issues or addictions are, uh, are, are not capable of going into that system right now. And so if, when you tear down a homeless encampment, what's left for them? You're saying we don't have adequate housing for you. You can go on public spaces, but you can't erect shelters to protect yourself from the elements. And that's what we're fighting right now. It's obviously a complicated issue, but if you have space, if the city is providing spaces, but some of the people who would be in these encampments are incapable of following the rules or, or whatever the, the reason would be why they couldn't go in there, what is the answer then? I mean, is it different shelters that would have different rules or, or how, do you, how do you ultimately then get these people out of the encampments? Yeah, I think we need systemic change. I mean, look, I'm not casting all the blame on the city for this. What I'm suggesting is that we need more affordable housing. We need more support in the shelter systems um, to to enable people who have, you know, different needs to be able to, to be there. And right now we just don't have that. And so when you don't have the proper infrastructure in place and you're tearing down an encampment where people are residing, um, there's harmful consequences to that. Now, I, I want to say I heard Jason Tarr's comments and I I also understand he, there's a document that he's been circulating to concerned citizens, but I'm not sure, Scott, if you've seen the uh, email that he sent back to a constituent. And I just want to read a couple of sentences from it. Um, so I, I use firsthand accounts like yours in many of my arguments at Friday's council meeting. I was very much speaking in favor, in your favor, and in protest to these encampments. Then at the end, he says, to sum up, I am supportive of dismantling the tents, and if staff do not act soon, I will have council order it. So the position that the city's taking now, what I'm going to suggest to you isn't the position that they're always taking or that they're taking publicly. And I have some concern with that. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to make it seem like there's going to be proper supports in place for every person when we know that's not the reality. And the other thing I'll tell you is I just finished a uh, urgent motion, an ex parte motion before the Superior Court. We started at 11 a.m. this morning. And the Superior Court has granted an injunction preventing the city from removing individuals from homeless encampments for a period of 10 days at this point. Yeah, okay, you, you mentioned um, systemic change is needed. We have to find new ways to put people into some different setup that is going to be more appropriate for them. We all know, though, Wade, that that kind of thing can't happen overnight. That's going to take some time to either to build new places or to reform new places or whatever else. In, in the meantime... 
are we okay then with these tent encampments staying for a month or two or three or however long they stay or growing even to be bigger ones because people have now gathered because they know they can do it? Are we okay with that? Um, you know, from my perspective, we should be because what's the alternative? The alternative is if, if people can't fit into the shelter system and there's not enough affordable housing, when you dismantle these encampments, you're sending people to either live rough or sleep rough. So, you know, out in the open elements or to frequent multiple shelters, because we know that homeless people, individuals who are homeless are more transient, right? So you're saying, okay, go from shelter system to shelter system, food bank to, from, to food bank uh, during a pandemic where you're increasing your exposure to people, uh, you know, at a vastly significant increased rate. So, you know, no one's saying this is a perfect solution. We're saying the alternative is worse. And we're also saying to the city, you know, gather the facts, work with um, HamSmart and the doctors who are on the front line and understand these risks before you say we're going to dismantle full encampments without the proper resources in place. And I hear your point, uh, and I do hear your point about where do they go if if they can't have these tents. That said, just over a year ago, I was down in Los Angeles and San Francisco not to study this. I don't want to make it sound like something it wasn't. We were down there on a trip. But as we were driving through, and you know this well, and a lot of people know this, San Francisco and Los Angeles are having a massive problem right now with tent cities and with tent encampments. And people are living in filth and they're defecating on the streets and there are rats everywhere and there's rampant drug use. And even people at the most liberal institutions in the world, like Berkeley University, are saying they're terribly concerned about infectious disease and and rotavirus and hepatitis and other things. Uh, Now, we're clearly not at that same point here, but do we want to allow it to grow so that that becomes a concern? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's ways to address it from becoming a concern. So, you know, you can provide support to encampments that currently exist in Hamilton, and they're nowhere at that level, as you, as you recognize. But, you know, we can send garbage collection there. We have doctors, frontline doctors like Dr. Wacherik, who's going down to encampments to provide medical support. There's people helping individuals in the encampments apply for ODSP to get some financial security. So, you know, these people in the encampments have to exist. If they don't exist in the encampments and they don't exist in the shelter system or affordable housing because it's not there, then they're, they're going to be transient and it's going to get worse for, for them and for the rest of us. So what I'm kind of suggesting is by having the encampment in place, we know where people are. We can track them. We can get them social services support. We can get them medical attention. We can start to address individually the, the, you know, the aspects of, of poverty and homelessness. When we lose track of them, for example, there's people who are, are pregnant and need prenatal support in these encampments. If you take down an encampment and they don't fit into any other system of housing currently in place, they're at jeopardy. And so are we. You know, it's a very difficult question. I'm wondering as I'm listening to you, in your opinion, is it possible? Because what you're, what you're taking the position of is a position of compassion towards these people. And I think that's an honorable position to take, quite honestly. But is it possible to be compassionate and also to disagree with your position about allowing the tents to stay up at the same time. Can people who are legitimately compassionate people also disagree with the idea of allowing this to go on? Yeah, I mean, because in the encampments, it's not perfect, right? It's not a perfect situation by any means. And um, what I'm suggesting is because it's not perfect. Yeah, and I think there's compassionate people on all sides of the fence. I don't think that anyone's out there saying, or most people aren't out there saying we should you know, harm people who are homeless. I think some people are saying, 
you know, the individuals in these encampments, these are terrible conditions for them and, and we should do something about it. I think where we disagree for the most part is what should we do, right? That's, that's where the disagreement comes into play. And I think that, you know, increasing the supports in the encampments and starting to address the root causes individually and systemically is the right step to do and doing that in partnership. So not having the city being opposed to a group of doctors and we should be doing this as a team. And to do it as a team, we need to have open communication. So my clients have been trying to engage with the city. And my clients have medical expertise on their side. These are the frontline doctors. So we need to do this together. Because ultimately, I think, at the end of the day, the city, my clients, we all want the same thing. It's just how do we go there? Wade, if I'm walking down a sidewalk downtown Hamilton, let's say in the winter, and I slip and fall on ice or I trip on a crack or whatever else, I, and we've seen it happen before, I can sue the city because it was a, 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 something that happened on public property, a flaw on public property. If something terrible were to happen at one of these encampments, either to someone who is living there or to someone who's passing by, heaven forbid, someone with mental health or drug issues does something, is the city potentially legally liable for that? There are liability issues, but the city could also be liable for um, taking the encampments down and what happens to people who don't fit into the shelter system. So my kind of thought on this and the way I view this is, look, there's always going to be liability whether you do something or you don't. And, you know, look at the social science evidence and make your decision based on the best information we have available in terms of really addressing the problems rather than, you know, taking care of an eyesight for people who may not want an encampment in their neighborhood or or some of the concerns around kind of nimbyism. Well, uh, you know what? I've heard someone ask that question already, and I'll, I'll pose it to you. Would you be okay if they set up on in front of your house? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question. Look, I, mean, I understand all sides of this. I'm not kind of, I, I'm not kind of pursuing this litigation on behalf of my client with blinders on. So, I know there's concerns, and um, you know, there's there's concerns around safety and things of that nature. Um, would I be launching a complaint if there was an encampment in front of my house? I would not. Um, you know, I might look into it. I'd do my research. I'd try to understand whether there's a genuine safety risk. I'd ask some questions. But, I mean, I think at the end of the day when I work through that, and, you know, I've had an opportunity to, to, to do a bit more work on this, obviously, because of the legal work I've been doing and see some of the facts and the research, I wouldn't when I got to the end of that road. What about the idea, if we don't want, if people are uncomfortable with the idea of encampments being set up in visible public areas or on streets or... You know, you know what I'm talking about. What about the idea the city says, all right, we can find a compromise here. We have a school field that's not being used, or we have a an, a piece of land somewhere. We're going to set that up and say, this is the safe place where we can do this. We then have the ability for city people to come in. It's not spread out all over the place. It's not on people's lawns or in front of their houses. What about the idea of setting up something like that? Would that even be followed? Would that even be used by the people? Or would they say, no, I want to be here? Yeah, no, I, I think that, that, you know, from my personal perspective, and I'm not speaking for my clients at this point, I think that's, you know, quite reasonable. I, it's important that people who are in encampments be close to the, the services that they need. So often it's, you know, access to toilets, um, food banks, things of that nature. And so they set up in certain areas for a reason. So I think if you, if you took those considerations into place and the city uh, took the lead on this, that would be a great alternative from my perspective. I think that you can make sure that the encampments are not becoming like what you've referenced from other encampments in the United States and that there's garbage collection, there's social services coming, there's medical treatment, we know where people are. I mean, that is a good alternative, I think. 
Kelser Farr, who um, who you alluded to, and we played a clip from before, um, he has said that he has taken complaints from constituents about drug use and about fighting and about garbage and about excessive noise. We understand the position where we want to be compassionate to the people who are homeless and don't have a place to live. But should the constituents who are seeing this stuff and potentially they also are being affected by this, should they have a voice to say, like, are they wrong to bring these complaints forward or should we be understanding of their concerns as well? I mean, I do understand it, right? I understand why they're they're coming forward with certain complaints. I mean, the conditions are not always ideal. But, you know, I, I think from a city councilor's perspective, there there has to be leadership in these times that has to be, I, I, from my perspective, and maybe this is a little bit too philosophical or preachy, but I think there has to be moral leadership. So even if a position is unpopular, I think you should base it on the best evidence available with you working with the community organizations to make that decision rather than, you know, some vocal people who don't maybe fully understand the, the situation or want them out of their backyard. So I understand that that's happening. I understand that Councillor Farr is getting complaints. But what I would suggest to him is make your decision based on the best information available to you on what the alternative is rather than just answering to, you know, a few yelling constituents. One more thing, and we're short on time, unfortunately, but one more thing, and that is if, if the city was to do, as you suggested, we create enough shelter beds and the appropriate shelter beds and everything else, we know, and I, I'm not just, this is not just hyperbole, we know that there are people who again, because of mental illness or because of drug use or because of whatever reason are suspicious, they don't want to use those facilities. We know there are shelter beds now that sometimes are open and people are still living on the street because they don't want to go. If those beds, if those facilities were open and people still said, I prefer to be in my tent, should the city then move in and say, I'm sorry, but we don't allow you? Or do you still get allowed to stay? I think you'd have to give that, you know, a a little bit of a deeper dive. So you'd have to look at why are people saying, I don't want to use the shelter system. Is it because someone has an addiction and they're going to be kicked out after a day or two? Or because, you know, there's people who often shelters won't take couples, right? So couples who want to stay together in the time of pandemic of their homeless will go to an encampment because they often can't access the shelter system. Or someone who has a dog. Many homeless people are estranged from families and a pet, um, whether it's a service animal or not, is their closest companion and they're not welcome in the shelter system. So I'm not in any way criticizing our shelter system. There are great shelters in Hamilton. They're very dedicated people who do this work. But what I am suggesting is that there have to be additional supports in these systems to, to welcome the most vulnerable because there may be an empty bed, but someone may not be able to access it even if they wanted to. And that's the it's point trouble- that I'm making. It- it's a bit of a deeper dive. It, it is. And it is a difficult story for sure. Wade Poziemka, who is a lawyer representing some of the people who are fighting to allow the people to stay in the tent encampments for now. Uh, Wade, appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Uh, and as I say, like it is, it, this is a complicated one. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I appreciate his answer that it's possible to be compassionate and still not be in favor of this. All right. So I, I don't believe that Wade is being the the um, is taking the position of black or white, one or the other. Because I think you can be concerned about people and also not be in favor of these tent encampments. And let me say, he used the word NIMBY. I asked him the question. He gave an answer, but I will put money down. And I'm not a betting man. I will put money on the table that if you were to have these tent encampments be set up in front of anybody's house pretty much in this city, even the most 
quote, quote, compassionate person would have some concerns. And it's great to say always, you know what, we, we, we have to be able to do this and we have to allow for this. And that's, we may, but the reality is it, it, it works until it's something that affects you as in front of your house or that your family or your children have to walk by. Look, these are complicated issues. I don't want to throw out people. These are human beings. I understand that. But also when, when they had the, the shelter that was put into first Ontario center back a number of months ago, and then the good weather came and I went down there and I wrote about it for the spectator. And I went down there and out front at the corner of Bay and York, it was disgusting. I'm sorry. It was disgusting because suddenly now you've got all the porta potties. It's a gathering place and there were syringes and there was filth. And I'm sorry. It's uh, if, if that is suddenly in front of your house or on your main street, it suddenly becomes a vastly different issue. And I think an awful lot of people who might be very supportive of this, if that was right in front of their house, might, they may not admit it, but they would probably be having some second thoughts and some other concerns. We're going to, um, this is, this is one side of it. We're going to try tomorrow to get Councillor Jason Farr on to talk about his side of this because, and the, and the people who would be not so much in favor of this, because we want to hear both sides of this thing. We will attempt to do that tomorrow because it is a very complicated issue. And again, as soon as you drive by, I think a lot of people are going to go, wait a second. Wait a second. We're doing this? You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We just listened for the better part of the last hour to the Doug Ford press conference. What I argued at the beginning, probably the most anticipated press conference we've had in a long, long time, because this one involved whether or not how, if they were, kids were going to go back to school. The answer we got, and I'm going to shorten this considerably. I won't rehash the whole thing. That was, as I say, the better part of an hour. I'll try to do it in about 30 seconds. Kids are going back to school if you're just joining us. Elementary students will be going back five days a week for five hours a day. High school students will be going back on an alternating day on, day off. Some work from school, some work, I guess, online with the same cohort. So there will be fewer people that they are exposed to. Uh, Masks will be required for kids in grade four through grade 12. There will be new screening, contact tracing, extra cleaning in the school. 500 new public health nurses are going to be hired to work to try and catch any outbreaks or prevent such things. New janitors are going to be hired to clean the schools. Uh, Many, many other things that were said in there. And two other things, very interesting One is that if you're a parent and you don't want to send your kid, if you're not comfortable, you don't have to. And two, and something we're going to talk about, because this I think is going to be really interesting and potentially really complicated. Teachers who choose not to go back to school because they are either not healthy or they're worried about it, they can choose not to go back, but they will have to then teach from home somehow. I want to bring in Charles Pascal, who's a professor, he's of Applied Psychology and Human Development at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Charles, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Pleasure, Scott. Uh, This is unfair to you, I grant you, because you were listening the same we were. You didn't have any heads up on this. So we're, you know, we're making you analyze this on the spot. Um, Your sense of what you heard from the announcement today? Uh, Well, that's not a problem in terms of last minute. Um, (laughs) I've been looking at at these things for the last uh, three or four months, uh, some of them quite obvious about the possibilities. Uh, It's good to see the minister uh, 
you know, coming late to the table. Um, basically, the headline for me is um, uh, this minister likes to uh, hide behind the sick kids report. Uh, the, the one that was released yesterday, actually, unlike the earlier one, uh, actually has some very important elements, all of which the minister has conveniently um, uh, ignored. So he's cherry picked uh, some of the, the, uh, the irrelevant ones. Uh, and ignored uh, the key ones. So let me just briefly say that uh, uh, the sick kids report that he likes to hide behind calls for a, calls for a major increase in the number of teachers, uh, making sure that large class sizes are not going to be part of it uh, in elementary uh, classes, uh, make sure that it's uh, no more than uh, uh, 15, 10 to 15. Uh, he's ignored that completely. Uh, the sick kids report calls for small classrooms, better Mental, uh, uh, better ventilation, uh, mental health supports. Um, all of this is ignored. And the, the Sick Kids report, again, that he loves to hold up because Sick Kids is, you know, world class, highly respected. Uh, the report says, and being absolutely certain that before you make any final plans, you have to have serious collaborations with educators and their leaders. And that has not taken place. So, and then finally, Scott, look. There's a lot the, uh, people are quoting all over the place, including sick kids erroneously and the minister that the evidence regarding younger kids, you know, not being uh, carriers or they're, they're, they're just you know, they're not very vulnerable regarding the uh, uh, the virus. That is simply not true. There's increasing evidence that young children can be not only uh, susceptible, but even worse in terms of being able to uh, to not know what's going on. They can be asymptomatic carriers. So this guy has done some very uh, selective cherry picking, uh, and he's also basically uh, put forth a plan that's on the cheap. Uh, this is a uh, this is all about saving money and creating the context that everything is to be fine. For me, it's Russian roulette. Uh, many points you said there. Um, let me jump into just a couple. The idea of the kids being carriers or not carriers. I mean, we had someone on from McMaster yesterday. They have a new study out as well that said what he said, that kids, that young kids in elementary school under 10 are not likely to be the carriers of this. Yeah, um, I saw that. I saw the and, report. Yeah, I saw yeah. the MAC report. And, uh, and I also saw the qualifications uh, that was in the report regarding its research and how they qualified their conclusions. And there's evidence in different parts of the world, including Germany, where uh, they've discovered uh, just the opposite of that. So, you know, I, I'd like uh, the very fine professors from the great university, uh, you know, in Hamilton, uh, I highly respect. Uh, I'm also a, a researcher, and I know that uh, research in these kinds of things is not black and white, uh, and there's increasing evidence uh, to the contrary. That's all I'm saying. And so regarding the health and well-being of both students uh, and, and teachers and educators and others, uh, I, I go pretty conservative about, uh, you know, what do you want to do to, uh, to take the, the risk or to minimize it? What should he have said then? I mean, you, you're you're clear that this is not sufficient. What should the decision or what should the announcement today, the, 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 the basic, the, the high points of it should have been? He should have said very clearly that in elementary school, uh, class sizes will be no more than 15. And that is going to require a large number of teachers many of whom left as a result of their cuts over the last year. So, number one, uh, we have to have social distancing with elementary uh, school students uh, from, from preschool and kindergarten 
uh, right through uh, elementary school, no larger than uh, 15. That means that kind of social distancing requires more space. So the increase in more ventilated space uh, has to also be increased. Those two things require a good deal of public investment, and they are every bit worth it. And interestingly, uh, sick kids uh, also, uh, you know, in their report yesterday, uh, recommends the same kinds of things. And this uh, this minister and premier, you know, like to talk about uh, all the world-class experts that they're listening to, and they're ignoring uh, some of their basic advice. So that would be number one, Scott, uh, the mental health uh, issues and supports regarding uh, uh, students coming back and teachers, which has to be in place, uh, ignored. And I, I would add that one as two of the most basic ones, along with all the basics regarding PPE uh, stuff and, uh, and and those kinds of things. There were a number of questions that were asked by the media, and I know you were listening. I hope everybody listening now was listening to the press conference. Um, number of questions, and I think very interesting and challenging questions about teachers because one of the things that was said was if a teacher doesn't feel comfortable or doesn't feel like their health will allow it they don't have to come back to class uh am i being cynical or skeptical by saying i expect many teachers to say they're not coming back well look if, if things uh, look i i you know and let's 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 talk about two uh, two groups of folks here let's talk about the teachers feeling safe let's also talk about the parents and how, whether they think what they heard today gives them enough confidence about having their kids go back. So, and I was going to ask uh, you that next, yeah, yeah for so sure. I would, but well, I would, I would compare them equally. I would not make the assumption, which I think is behind your, uh, you know, important question. I would not make the assumption uh, that Ontario's teachers, with some exceptions, uh, as is the case with any cohort of of any profession, that they would stay home uh, for any other reason than their personal health and safety. Teaching at home is no walk in the park. And if you look at the way in which teachers in Ontario uh, did what they did under very stressful circumstances uh, during the, uh, the, the school this past school year, uh, they worked under uh, remarkable stress. And notwithstanding the lack of direction from uh, Queen's Park, uh, they did a fa- fantastic job, um, uh, messy in terms of online and distance learning and all that. But no, I don't think teachers would abuse that in any way. I think like parents, it would be a sense of personal safety regarding whether they believe that what they heard today uh, was enough to, uh, uh, to get them uh, in front of the students. Uh, most, stu- most, uh, most teachers, Scott, uh, really, uh, like, like me, I, I teach at a different level, uh, but we all want to be with our students, and that's true. No, fair enough. And, for, and Charles, for whatever reason it is that they would choose to stay home, whether it's their safety or whatever else, but let's, let's go with that. Yeah. If you suddenly have a whole lot of teachers who say, I just don't feel safe, is this thing going to work? Well, I, that's, a, that's, a very good, that's a very good question. We don't know that. But, you know, it would be when, when the minister says, he looks into the camera and he says he's talked to hundreds of teachers, uh, you know, he's, he's chatting himself up. Uh, he may be talking to teachers here and there and friends in his writing or whatever, but it is widely known. Uh, based on the calls that I get, the emails that I get, uh, not just from directors of education, but classroom teachers, for whatever reason, Scott, uh, I I keep getting these notes about, what do you think? And uh, they have not been consulted. I'm not even, I'm not talking about the unions, the union representatives. Rank and file teachers have not been properly consulted. That's a fact. And this guy, 
you know, looks into the camera and, and says otherwise. And so uh, I don't know, but you're, you're asking a very good question. But it will all come down to whether parents uh, and teachers uh, feel that this is safe. And if, if they do, uh, then we'll see what happens. Hopefully everything will be fine. But he did not, they're not putting on the table the most important uh, resources to ensure the highest level of safety. They're doing this on the cheap, and it feels a little bit like Russian roulette. You mentioned the other part of it being parents. Uh, if parents decide they're not going to send their kids, I'm not sure, I don't know how that works. I mean, I suppose they're still going to then be able to do their schooling online to some degree. I just, there, yeah. there seems to be an awful lot of questions still. What happens yeah, I know, if? And that's, that's a really, and, and all, and, uh, you know, I don't know if, uh, if you have kids in the system or whatever, but parents, you know, none of this is monolithic. If all parents vary. You know, to the parents who have uh, have resources, uh, you know, at the high end, uh, no, no big deal. Uh, you know, the uh, the parents can go back to work, which they want to do, uh, hopefully safely. Uh, and and the nannies and babysitters, they'll take care of the kids. And uh, you know, maybe somebody will help the kids with the online learning. Online learning will happen, but again, there'll be that tension uh, between uh, parents who want to go back to work. How many parents are at home? Uh, do uh, do the kids have access to high levels of, uh, of, of internet access. Uh, and it's not just the low income families that have that challenge uh, when there's more than one parent and two or three uh, folks trying to, to get online, even high speed internet becomes sketchy uh, for many trying to use it. So it, it, it's very difficult. And I go back to what I said earlier about the fact that all of these options were known four months ago. And it's like the minister uh, thinks that he kind of invented the three options about five weeks ago. And we've lost a huge amount of time in terms of proper collaboration and consultation because he seems to always know best. And this is not a, a naturally collaborative uh, minister. And I've known every minister since, you know, the best one we've ever had, Mr. Davis uh, in the mid-60s, who's celebrating his 91st birthday today, I would say, uh, to the present. And this this is just not the way to engage in dealing with the complexities of the very difficult circumstances in which we find ourselves today. About a week or so ago, I can't remember exactly when it was, we heard about the report that was put out by the opposition um, that would come out with a plan for, I think it was $3.2 billion. And one of the suggestions in there was that we needed to hire 17,000 new teachers and, and I'm wondering if there's not some people who are going to look at that and say, that's fine, but that's pretty cynical then that if, as long as we hire teachers, that people are willing to go back to school, that that sounds like a, just a, a spend money platform rather than a solve a real problem platform. How would 17,000 additional teachers have made school safer? Well, let's just take, uh, I, I saw that plan. And when I saw the amount of money, just I glanced at it, I said, well, at least uh, they're figuring out what real things cost. So, um, let's just take one school board. The largest school board in the country is the Toronto District School Board, public board yep. in Toronto. And they uh, have a huge amount of respect uh, for their, their director, all the key folks. Uh, I, I know they put out their plan. They said, this is what, this is what it really costs. And for that school board, uh, in order to have uh, social distancing with 15 or less uh, kids in every classroom, uh, you need to basically hire in their case, 2,500 more teachers. It looked I, I, I looked at every single detail about how they 
came to that, and it made a lot of sense. They weren't fudging anything. They weren't trying to throw a Hail Mary. Uh, they were basically saying, because we need these teachers, we will also need more space. If you have uh, fewer kids in, in uh, the class uh, and you have more teachers and you need more uh, environments for 15 other kids and 15 other kids, you need more ventilated space. So all of those things require cost. And if you think about the money that this government has taken out of education, along with thousands of teachers who actually uh, left the system around Ontario because they increased class size, uh, it's basically an adjustment uh, that will allow for uh, something that will provide the extra safety. And so I understand people will look at, uh, I guess it was the Liberal Party that put that out. I guess they look at that and they say, wow, that's a, that's a lot of new teachers. Why do we need those new teachers? You need those new teachers so they can adapt to the individual differences of fewer students to keep everybody healthy. Uh, it makes perfectly good sense. But again, it looks like, you know, it's tax and spend and it's money we don't have. Well, we seem to have a lot of money for uh, certain kinds of things during a crisis. This is a crisis. And uh, $3 billion, uh, whatever it was, uh, if you look at the categories, uh, they seem to have covered all the right categories. It may sound like a lot to a lot of folks, and it may look like, uh, you know, Mr. Ford, who's spending $700 million, according to him and the minister, you know, boy, that's a, that's a much better bet. That's $700 million. Well, okay, what are we betting on? Uh, the stakes are pretty high, and uh, I'd go with uh, a better thought-out plan uh, than this kind of uh, trying to do, um, uh, you know, kind of a shell game with money. He also announced how much more money he's spending, whatever. That's a show game, too, regarding the finances. Look, I, I used to be a deputy minister of education of Ontario. I'm a nonpartisan. I look at the evidence, and I just I get, uh, because of my um, uh, unfortunate passion for high-quality education is the best investment we can make in our future, um, the evidence should inform uh, what's best. And uh, what I heard today was... Um, um, a lot of dancing around uh, the facts and cherry-picking uh, the wrong cherries from the Sick Kids Report. Charles Pascal, Professor of Applied Psychology and Human Development at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.